Wilfred Grenfell spent most of his life working as a medical missionary in Labrador. And last week, <clears throat> if you were here, you will remember that I quoted his definition of a call from God. He said, the recognition of a need and the recognition of an ability to meet the need constitutes a call. In other words, if you see something needs doing, and in your heart you believe you might be able to do it, maybe, maybe you, ask, you need to ask the question, is God making a claim on my life? Is that God's way of saying, I want you to do something for me? Now, it's a tremendous privilege to be called by God, but there's very often a tremendous cost to be paid. Most of us will remember the name Eric Liddell and what happened in the Paris Olympics in 1924, not because we were around in 1924, but because we've all seen the film Chariots of Fire. Eric refused to run in a heat on, on a Sunday, and so he was unable to run in his special race, the race he'd been training for, the 100 meters. In doing so, he denied himself an Olympic gold medal and got into a fair amount of hot water. But he ran in the 400 meters instead. Not only won the race, but created a world record that stood for the next 12 years. Now, a glittering athletic career lay ahead of him. But just two years later, he went off to China as a missionary, giving up all his athletic ambitions altogether. And he's not alone. In her book on missionary biographies, Isabel Kuhn, who was also a missionary to China, tells of a man called Fraser, a brilliant musician. He was able to memorize whole symphonies and concertos, and yet he gave up all thought of fame and fortune on the concert stage in order, again, to go to China as a missionary. Now, what sort of process did these people go through in order to make a decision like that? It was a huge step, wasn't it? Did they decide instantaneously? Or was the process much longer, much more demanding? You see, for most of us, when God calls, there are always stumbling blocks in the way. And God's call is sometimes very difficult to discern. Sometimes it's as clear as a bell, but sometimes it, it, it's much more general. Well, last week we left Moses in the desert. He'd run away from Egypt after his murder of the Egyptian taskmaster had been discovered. And this morning we meet him in the encounter he had with God at the burning bush, perhaps one of the most mysterious and awesome and inexplicable appearances that God ever gave to a human being. 
And to be honest, Moses didn't acquit himself all that well. He made a great many excuses. He tried every which way to wriggle out of going to Egypt. And in the end, when all his excuses were set aside, he said to God, oh, Lord, please send someone else. But we mustn't be unfair on Moses. Sounds a bit pathetic, but you see, like most of us, he was plagued with self-doubt and with fear and with a sense of inadequacy. He'd grown up in Egypt, the, daughter, the son of Pharaoh's daughter in a royal palace, and he, he thought of himself no, himself, no doubt, as a somebody. But he just spent 40 years in the wilderness, and that had taught him that he was a nobody. So this morning... I want to show you how God dealt with him patiently, just as he does with us. And I want you to notice particularly God's concern for his people. Now, Moses was tending his father-in-law's flocks, and he saw this burning bush. And Marion very effectively showed us that there was something very special about this kind of fire. There on the side of the mountain was a bush on fire, but it wasn't being burnt up. And so Moses decided to go and investigate. And he discovered that, in fact, God was in the midst of this bush, and the flames were the evidence of God's presence. And when he'd recovered from being frightened out of his wits, God explained why he wanted to speak to Moses. In the 40 years that Moses had been out of Egypt in the Sinai Desert, things had grown worse and worse for the people of Israel. They were groaning under the yoke of slavery, and God had heard them. He'd remembered the covenant he'd made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 400 years before. He'd seen their suffering. He was concerned about them. And so he said to Moses, I have come down to rescue them. Well, thought Moses, it's about time. Great. I've been, I've been thinking about that myself. Maybe he'd even been praying about it. Who knows? But it wasn't only a matter of rescue. Not only was God going to bring them out of Egypt, he was going to bring them into a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. It all sounds too good to be true, but you see, here's the catch in verses 9 and 10. The cry of the Israelites has reached me. I have seen how the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God cares for his people, and he's going to rescue them. That's the plan, and Moses is the one to carry it out. As we saw last week, God used two Hebrew mid midwives, along with Joseph, uh, Moses' mother and Pharaoh's daughter, to start the process. Now he was going to carry it on with Moses at the head. The problem was that this wasn't at all what Moses had in mind. Oh, he was quite happy tending the sheep. Like many of us, when God's call came, he wasn't at all too sure that he wanted to listen to it. And so he, he set up a, a list of objections. They're just the, the same kind of thing that would often stop us. So I want to have a look at them, each one in turn, and the way that God very gently until right at the end, counted them. First of all, let's deal with Moses' self-doubt. You want to send me, but I'm a shepherd. 
And shepherds aren't very high on the social ladder in the Middle East. I know what Pharaoh's palace is like. I'm not going to cut a very splendid figure as a shepherd when I'm presented to the king. I'm a nobody. Who am I? God's answer is, I will be with you. Okay, you're a nobody, but you will have the creator of the universe by your side. Sorry, that doesn't reassure Moses. He still doubts it. And so he wants to know God's name. All the other nations had gods with names. Moses had grown up in Egypt, and the Egyptians had hundreds of gods, and they all had names. Yet the God of Israel had never been referred to by name. He had just been the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses wanted to know what to call God. But God wouldn't be tied down by a name. All he told him was that he is who he is. I am who I am. And that name implies an eternal existence, yet one that's always relevant to the present, someone who's always been, and yet someone who's active in every moment, every instant of history. So Moses is told to go and assemble the, Israel, the elders of Israel and tell them that God has sent him. And he was assured of God's presence with him. Now, if you're anything like me, you suffer very often from self-doubt when it comes to living as a Christian. Yesterday, I was in a seminar at Bible by the Beach, and there was a wonderful testimony of a young woman who has recovered twice from anorexia. And she, was, she is married to a young minister who's full of bounce and energy. It was great to see him sort of bouncing across the platforms. Wonderful. And you might think that someone like that would talk only in terms of enthusiasm and energy and vision and optimism. And you know what he said? He said, one of the things that we need to do most of all from the pulpit is to admit our brokenness our inability. And I wanted to go and have a word with him afterwards, but there were lots of people who wanted to have a word with him afterwards. So uh, I didn't have the chance. The question I wanted to ask him was this. How do I talk about brokenness to the congregation without destroying their confidence in me as the minister? Because if the minister's broken, what hope is there for the rest of us? Well, We've got to learn the lesson that Moses had to learn. The hope that there is for the rest of us is God himself in the midst of us. Coming to us and saying, I know you're a nobody. Don't worry, I'm going to be with you. The one who has always been there. The one who always will be there. The one who is eternally present. The one who created the universe. The one who will bring everything to its appointed end and create 
a new heaven and a new earth. He's the one who's going to be with you. What are you going to worry about? And Paul tells us, doesn't he, in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, I know the atmosphere for Christian living and Christian witness is increasingly hostile. Only in the last few years we've seen how far worldly values have moved from Christian values. You can't open a council meeting with a prayer now. Well, you can't in certain places. Believers have to forfeit their jobs if they're true to their consciences, and the majority of members of parliament seem quite content to redefine the principle of marriage so that it loses all reference to two human beings whose act of love produces new life. And if you look in Genesis 2, you'll see that's the center of the one-flesh relationship. And two fellows and two ladies can't do that. Sorry. And we have to pray about that, as you saw on the, on the overhead. Pray particularly. It's May the 20th, Carol. May the 20th. Pray that some element of common sense will eventually penetrate the thickness of the House of Commons. Sorry about the cynicism. Yes, it's not a very easy place or time to be a Christian. But if God is for us, who can be against us? God is with us. He's revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ, and he's given us his Holy Spirit to be with us every moment. Nothing can separate us from him. We can respond to his tall call with total confidence. Okay, what's the next objection? Well, you see, when God asks you to do something, there are always two great fears that loom over you. First of all, that the people to whom he has sent you are going to reject you. And second is that you're going to fail. So, Moses has these two great fears. Supposing the Israelites don't believe me. Supposing they refuse to listen to me. Okay, I'll give you a set of signs. Now, we're going to leap into chapter 4 next week. But let me just anticipate chapter 4 very briefly. Moses was given a series of signs. His staff can be turned into a snake and back again. His hand can become leprous and be instantly healed. And most deadly of all, he's given the power to turn water of the Nile into blood. Now, we don't have a set of signs like that. Maybe it would be useful if we did. I was used to think I'd love to have been able to do what Elijah did, you know, on Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal, and um, align my friends up and say, now, you try and call down fire from heaven, and then I would call down fire from heaven, and 
get the same response. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Of course it wouldn't convince anyone. All I would be would be precisely the same as Marion doing a trick. So we haven't got a set of signs. But we needn't worry. We've got something much better. We've got the gospel. And the power of God is present in the gospel wherever and whenever it is preached. We don't need to fear failure or rejection. If the message is rejected, it's not us who are rejected, but the God who calls people everywhere to turn back to him in faith and obedience. And the only failure for any Christian in any area of their life is to give up. So don't worry if you fail. Failure is not, is not a badge of, of shame. <laughs> Giving up, yes. Not trying, yes. But you see, the incredible thing is that God can use common clay pots. That's what Paul calls us. We have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the all-surpassing power and glory is God's not from us. Oh, yes, we're broken. God chooses broken people. What does he say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? A chapter I'm forever quoting. Consider your call, brethren, how that not many mighty were called after the flesh, not many wise. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong and the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That's how he does things. Those are the people he wants. Third excuse, I'm no good, I'm not up to the job, you've got to send someone else. Because you see, Moses said, I'm, I'm no good at public speaking. Unaccustomed as I am to public speaking. He didn't have the gift of the gab. He wasn't one of those people who could sell a fridge to an Eskimo. So how on earth could he convince Pharaoh to give the Israelite slaves their freedom. What does God say to Moses? And this is when he gets a bit warm. <laughs> Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf and dumb? Who gives sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Moses didn't need to worry about whether or not he could convince Pharaoh. God would do the convincing. God would give him the right words to say. And Jesus promised precisely the same thing, didn't he, when we're in a tight spot. Whenever, this is Mark 13, 11, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand what, about what to say. Just say what is given you to say. At the time, for it is not you who is speaking, but the Holy Spirit. God promises that when we need to speak on his behalf, the Holy Spirit will give us the words to say. And that applies to us all, whether or not we have a special commission like Moses, whether we've been called to stand at the front and preach or just required, as every Christian is required, to share the gospel with as many people as they can. So we've no reason to feel inadequate. And in any case... God understands and takes Moses' fear, fear seriously. He's not just making excuses, and so 
he has another way to encourage him. Chapter 4, verses 14 and following. What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak, uh, sorry, you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you to speak and will teach you what to do. And again, this is something God does for us today. He gives us the help and encouragement of fellow believers who can share the load, who can support us when we need a word of encouragement. And you know, you are tremendously encouraging. You really are. You're a wonderfully responsive congregation. And it's been a tremendous privilege to be a minister here. Over the years, I've had sort of varying responses from the congregation. I remember on one occasion I was preaching in a little brethren assembly, and there was a man on the front row, and he'd got his arms folded like this. It's a very confrontational body posture. And everything I said, he shook his head. It was very difficult to preach a sermon under those circumstances. And then I remember once someone came to me after the service and said, oh, I did enjoy your sermon, especially the shouting. You are a great encouragement to me. You really are. And I'm very grateful. And uh, Alex asked me uh, what I intend to do after I retire, apart from putting my feet up and doing nothing. Um, I said I would make it my business every Sunday to say something encouraging, especially to the minister. Certainly not to sit there with my arms folded, shaking my head. But you see, that's what the Christian family is for. We are here to bear one another's burdens, aren't we? And that's another wonderful thing about admitting our weakness and admitting our brokenness. You think of someone trying to shift a huge, great, heavy weight on their own. Wouldn't it be so much better if they called out Hey, Charlie, come and give me a hand. That's what we have to do from time to time. We have to admit our weakness. And God says here in his word, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? He can come and help you, and he's on his way. We are called to bear one another's burdens. And one of the ways to do that is to come alongside a fellow Christian whom we know is having a hard time and gently share that we understand how hard it is sometimes to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. It comes down to this. Our Heavenly Father will never ask us to do anything which is beyond us, because along with the task will come the strength to perform it. 